sit down for our Bible readings. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Second reading is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 12 to 19, and can be found on pages 1079 of the Pew Bible. The Death of Jesus. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and, as another scripture says, they will look on one another they have pierced. Next reading is also from the Gospel of John, and it's chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. triumphal entry. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the nature of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. So show us your ways, O Lord. 
Teach us your paths. Guide us in your truth and teach us. For you are God our Saviour and our hope is in you all day long. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't we stay in that passage in, in John chapter 12. Because when Jesus comes into Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday, did he know what he was doing? You know, when Jesus rides into town and he hears the cheers, did he expect five days later that those same people who cheered him would be jeering him? And when Jesus sees this, this huge crowd in this euphoric and highly charged atmosphere, did he believe that he was actually processing to his death? You see, from, from this reading, if we, if we read it in, as to how John wrote it, it's clear that the disciples didn't have a clue what was happening and what Jesus was doing. And remember, John was, was one of them. We see that in, in verse 16. At first, they did not understand, and it was only afterwards, it was only after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, that they understood what had happened. It's also evident from the hordes and masses of the great crowd that John describes in, in verse 12, that they didn't see what was going to happen. As far as they were concerned, they just heard all about those signs that Jesus had done that we followed in Epiphany. And as far as they were concerned, when they took their, their great palm branches like we see today, the trajectory was only one way. It was one of expectation. The direction was to greatness. The path that Jesus was going down lead, led to victory and glory. After all, many of them had seen Jesus just shortly before performed one of the greatest signs of them all in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And then when we consider the Pharisees in, in verse 19, it's obvious that they realize a different approach is needed and that their current one isn't working. Because they say to each other, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Yet when Jesus sets off from Bethany and he climbs that hill to Jerusalem, he knew exactly what he was doing. He didn't have any agendas about him like the crowds might have had about Jesus. He didn't have any other expectation other than he understood how his actions would be interpreted. When Jesus entered Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday, he'd been on a mission. And his mission was that he was going to Jerusalem to die. That's why roll forward five days to 3 p.m. in the afternoon on that Friday. And his final words were these. It is finished. It is complete. He knew he was on a mission to die in Jerusalem. For him, his death had a purpose. His death had a meaning. His death had a significance. And over the next 30 years or so, what would happen is the biblical writers would write from their own conversations with Jesus and from their own eyewitness accounts of what that death actually meant. What that death 
actually achieved? What was the the purpose behind it? And what they would do is they would use first century Middle Eastern analogies and pictures to try to grasp in some way all that Jesus' death on the cross achieved. We've looked at them over the past few weeks that somehow Jesus' death pays a price. That somehow in Jesus' death, God was reconciling all of humanity back to himself. That somehow Jesus, in his death, pays a ransom. And when I start to think about what the cross means, when I start to think about, well, what was the purpose behind it? What was the meaning behind it? What I've always found helpful are two small words. Two small everyday words that that we use all the time. Here's the first. It's the word for. That somehow the cross does something for us. That's what Paul's talking about if we flip over to that passage in in Colossians 2. What I'd like us to do is to follow the the translation here on, on the screen. Because obviously the Bibles you're reading there, if you're reading a pew Bible, are 30 years old now. And so we look now at what the, the best modern day scholarship can, can provide. So if we can just flip to it and look at it here, we'll, we'll start to understand what Paul actually was, was talking about here. Because what he does is he uses two pictures. He uses two pictures to describe what Jesus' death does for us. Firstly, that it cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness. And secondly, it disarmed the powers and authority. That's how Paul says to the church at Colossae, this is what Jesus' death achieves. It cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness. It disarmed the powers and authorities. Let's look at the first one. This is the charge that, if you like, the debt that Jesus cancelled. You see, when the crowds chanted for Jesus on Palm Sunday, they chanted for him to save them. That's what they chanted. They shouted, Hosanna, which means save us. And they chanted for Jesus to save them because they couldn't do it themselves. And Jesus did save them. But not from what and as they were expecting. As the Christmas story reminds us, Jesus came to to save us from our sin. And in the Bible, sin isn't something so much that we do. It's rather about our wrecked relationship with God because of our rebellion. Never think of sin as something you do. Think of it as a relationship that has been broken. That doesn't just break our relationship with God. It breaks our relationship with every human being. Never mind the whole created order. And what Paul was trying to say to them there was he was trying to say to them this. As a result, because we're sinful, we have a debt. If you like, there's a charge placed against us. And because we are sinful... We can't wipe out that debt ourselves. And as he says here about this this debt, it not only stood against us, it also condemned us. 
It not only stood against us like an enemy, it almost also condemns us like trying to get over an obstacle. And we know this, don't we? We know this is true in the story of our own lives. That often what happens is that we hear those condemning voices of guilt in our heads. Sometimes they'll come, won't they, like this, accusing us of being a rubbish Christian. Sometimes it will come through the advertisers because we get duped into living a a false lifestyle. Sometimes they come from our own memory of those times when we recall those moments when we have lived the most shabbily and we've let those we love down. And we know we have those moments because, well, otherwise I'm a freak and I'm the only one who has those moments and I don't think I am. And what Paul was saying, what Jesus' death achieved, is that by dying, the sinless one forgave all our sins. And there is nothing more precious in life than forgiveness. Not just the ones that we judge worthy to be forgiven. Or not just the ones that others would judge as worthy to be forgiven. On the cross, what Paul was saying was that Jesus cancelled them. He not only cancelled them, the word there means to wipe out completely the debt we owe. And not just the debt, all the accusatory charges that anyone would throw against you. If you like, imagine yourself in perfect white clothing and imagine sticking your hands in a great big bowl of oil. And then you suddenly realise that you can't take the oil off yourself. No matter how you try, you just get yourself more and more dirty. And imagine Jesus coming along with a rag and he manages to just wipe completely off the oil and make you clean again. That was the image that Paul wanted them to grasp because if you remember when Jesus was crucified, there was a charge put against Jesus. They nailed it to the cross. The charge was the king of the Jews. This was what, in Pilate's eyes, Jesus had been guilty of. And he nailed it above his head. And then what does Paul say here? Paul says that on the cross, God nailed all the charges, all the charges of our sin. The huge debt that was all there for all of humanity. And Jesus, by his death, not only nullified it, he blotted it out completely. As he said himself, it is finished. The mission is complete. Jesus' death on the cross filled a debt we all had. But it didn't end there because there's this second picture. This second picture that Paul has in this passage about what Jesus' death on the cross achieved. It disarmed the powers and authorities. You see, when Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it had many of the marks of a triumphant general or a triumphant king of that day. After what they'd done after they'd conquered another nation, they would come back home. They would ride into a city on a horse or on a chariot to symbolize their great power and their authority. And then what they'd do afterwards is they'd bring in the spoils of war. 
Whether that be that that was lots of gold and precious materials. Whether that be that then would follow with all these bedraggled prisoners. And then right at the very end, if he was still alive, would come the king of the defeated nation. And then what they'd do for everyone to see is they'd bring the king of the defeated nation all before them and they'd execute him as a public spectacle for all of them to see. And yet on Palm Sunday, Jesus chooses to ride on a donkey to symbolize that his his power and authority is not from a, a worldly perspective. And then he himself becomes the king who is executed. You see, not only was crucifixion a barbaric death, Not only was crucifixion a dishonorable death, it was a humiliating and it was a shameful death. And as Jesus hangs there naked on a cross for the world to see, he is this public spectacle. He is a laughingstock for all those who cheered on Palm Sunday. And yet, if we look at verse 15, Paul says, and having disarmed, the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That doesn't make sense, does it? That this apparent death of failure, Paul suddenly describes as this great moment of victory. It's the great paradox, isn't it, and mystery of the cross, that it isn't an event that can be solved, but rather it's an event that goes truly beyond our comprehension, because out of apparent defeat comes victory. Out of supposed shame comes glory. Out of seeming failure comes triumph. And the gospel writer was John was just the same. He didn't see the cross as a failure. He didn't see the cross as the lowest point in Jesus' life. He actually saw it as the highest point and the highest moment of glory. It's why Good Friday can never be depressing. It's time to pause, yes. It's time to reflect, yes. It's time to be poignant, yes. It may be a bit sad, but Good Friday can never be depressing. If you think Good Friday is depressing, then you don't understand the cross. And you can never understand Easter Sunday without Good Friday. The two are inseparably linked. Good Friday is about understanding the amazing love of God that we've just sang, that was poured out for you and me. It's about knowing how much God values and loves you and me that he would be prepared to let his son die for you and for me. It's about getting lost in the wonder that Jesus chose the cross for you and me. It's about, in that great hymn that we'll sing later, about the amazing grace of God that broke the chains of your and my sin. Without Good Friday, life is depressing. Without it. And in the end, the powers and authorities of death were not stronger than his life. Their hate was not stronger than his love. Their evil was not stronger than his good. That's what Paul is saying to the Colossian church as he says to them about what the cross did. If you like, imagine Jesus now riding as a king through the streets. And behind him, what follows as a public spectacle is not people, but it's those forces 
that enslave us. It's those things that undermine our confidence. It's those things that restrict our freedom from truly living the Jesus life. And there is nothing that what Paul was saying, there's nothing, nothing whatsoever that can get in the way of that because Jesus is Lord because of the cross. It cancelled a debt. It also disarmed the powers and authorities. And there's this second small everyday word about what the cross means that I always find helpful. It's the word in. As a result of what Jesus' death has done, it changed us. It transformed us. Because when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. When we were helpless to ourselves, God made us alive with Christ. God's already done it. Even before we realize it in life, God has already done it. You see, the cross does something in us when we understand what it means. It brings breath into our soul and we understand that there's a different way to live because God made you alive with Christ. And so if you want three pictures to finish with as to what that looks like, I'll leave you with three from our text from that Palm Sunday. They're not the only three. There are far more others, but let's just stick with the text before us today on this Palm Sunday. Here's the first. The sign that God made you alive with Christ is just when you can understand this. With the disciples, they didn't understand what Jesus was doing on Palm Sunday. And sometimes with the things that go on in our lives, we don't understand what is going on. But when you can understand in the present and when you can discern God's footprints in the present of what is going on, It's a sign that God made you alive with Christ and that you're living it out. There's the first one. Here's the second one. Remember the crowds? The crowds all had some sort of expectation or agenda that Jesus was going to deliver on for them. And one of the hardest things when you move from being in the crowds to being a follower of Jesus is to let go of those things that sometimes the agendas that you want Jesus to deliver on or the expectations that you want Jesus to deliver on and dare I say sometimes invoke the name of Jesus on their behalf. And when you let go of them, it's a sign of the cross changing you. And here's here's the third. Think about the Pharisees for a moment. These apparently godly people, remember. They were the religious people, if you like. But yet what we see is they're just... They're kind of... I don't know what word we might want to use for it. 
but they're not very nice things they're doing behind the scenes, is it? The plotting. You see, here's what I find about 45 years of church life, basically. Here's what I found growing up as a child. Here's what I found as a teenager. Here's what I found in my 20s, in my my 30s, and so on from there. Is that sometimes the most religious of us, sometimes the most committed of us, can sometimes get sucked into what I heard Justin Welby say two weeks ago. is the curse of the church. Church politics. You see... The sign that God made you alive with Christ, the sign of the cross changing you, is that you don't want anything to do with it. Or actually, when you hear it, you ignore it. Or even better, when you hear it, you you challenge it. And it never happens here, so we can just remember that, can't we? You see, this is what it means to live this authentic life of what Paul was describing here when God made you alive with Christ. This is what Jesus rode into part into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday for this is what he died for as he breathed his last breath. It's about allowing and remembering what the cross has done for us and then in response to what Jesus has done for us, letting it change us to be the people described as God made you alive with Christ. Let us pray. They took their palm branches and went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna! Save us. So Lord, may each one of us here this morning, may we truly know what it means to be saved by you. To get lost in the wonder of it. To just be overcome by the amazing love that you had for us. And to then from there, to live our lives knowing that you made us alive with Christ. And to focus and center our lives just on living that out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.